Welcome to the Secure Your Retirement Podcast. This is the place where high-achieving professionals come to gain confidence on how to successfully navigate their transition into and life during retirement. There's no such thing as a passive retirement plan. To have a successful financial future, your plan must be actively managed. Each week, we will bring you action plans and expert interviews that will help you gain insights, learn fresh perspectives, and finally experience peace of mind about your retirement. Here to help you achieve your dream retirement and live the life you deserve are your hosts, certified financial planners, Braden Stancil and Merce Tariq. All right. Well, welcome to our show where we're going to talk all things estate planning for retirement in, or estate planning in retirement. And we're very excited to have a very special guest with us. Uh, we call him Chess, Chess Griffin, and he has uh, been fantastic. Over the years, we have worked with Chess and we have uh, had a lot of our clients work with him. And every single time we ask our clients or they call us back and they'll say, Man, I tell you, you know what I appreciate about Chess is that he's easy to talk to. He explains things in such a way that we get it. And it was such a pleasure to work with him. And, say, and I, I think that's what I appreciate about Chess is that, you know, when we ask him a question about estate planning, because there are things that can get complicated, every single time we get very good clarity. We walk away and we go, wow, I get it. I understand it. So I just want to say welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Chess, for coming on. And we look forward to talking to you. Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Raiden and Mers. It's a real pleasure to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Good. So it looks like you are in a special location there. You're in the, the same situation we are, all are with the COVID. So uh, yep. where are you at right now? I'm actually at home. Uh, we have been working you know, at the office. We haven't had clients come in when we've had to do a will signing or something. We've done sort of a drive-through thing in the parking lot, but uh, but, but today I'm at home, so I'm joining you from the homestead. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, what we'd like to do is just kind of get a little bit of your background and a little bit about uh, what, uh, how long you've been in this business and, and of, of helping people in the estate planning world. So could you give us a little bit of background? How long have you been doing this? Sure. Yeah, let's see. Well, I've been practicing in this area for about 22 or 23 years. I was uh, born and uh, raised in North Carolina. We moved around quite a bit, but uh, went to Wake Forest Law School. And I've been with my current law firm since the late 90s. I'm one of the partners there. And we focus on estate planning and probate. And we've been doing that for a long time. And it's something that I really enjoy uh, helping people with. Very good. So Chess, um, you know, everyone has their little origin story as to what landed them into the profession. <laughs> uh, and actually, for me, when I was in high school, I actually did an internship with an estate planning uh, law firm. They did some estate planning, they did, did some family law, and they did some real estate as well. And so I got a little taste of that at a very young age. But what was your story as far as how you got into where you are now? Well, that's a great question, Merz. I mean, I think, you know, I've always sort of been a people person. I enjoy working with people. I enjoy helping them through things. So when I was in law school, you know, in law school, you kind of take a lot of different classes and a lot of different things and to kind of learn the basics. And I'm thinking, well, that's not really quite what I'm looking for. That's not really quite what I'm looking for. And then when I started doing the estate planning work, I thought, you know, that's that's it exactly. That's, that's my niche. Because it gives me an opportunity to work with families, you know, help people through different situations in a, in a positive way. I mean, uh, a lot of times in a probate, obviously, it's a very sad situation and the family's grieving, but to be able to provide some guidance and some assistance in that, in that difficult time, you know, it's a nice thing. 
It's not a real litigious type of practice, which is good as well. <laughs> we got enough of those. So yeah, I think it's that's sort of the origin. It's just my desire to help people. And this is sort of a good way to do that with my uh, legal practice. Very nice. So where are you from? Like what, where were you, where'd you grow up? Well, I was born down near uh, Moorhead City, but my family moved away when I was really young. Uh, we have a uh, family in Edenton, Elizabeth City, uh, Rocky Mount. So we kind of bounced around and then we started moving outside the U.S. When I was uh, a little bit later, a little bit older, my father's job kind of moved us around and kind of bounced again all over the place, sort of, sort of led the gypsy life for a while. But uh, once I started law school, you know, I came back home and have been here ever since. Very nice. Very good. So can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you live? And then also, you know, while you're not in the office or doing a bunch of state law, you're doing on your off time. Yeah. Well, we live in Raleigh. Uh, my wife and I, she's an attorney as well. She's a state employee. She works for the North Carolina State Le- uh, Legislature. We have two sons, both teenagers. In fact, our older son, we just got settled at NC State yesterday. So moved him into his dorm. And uh, so that was that's our first one out of the coop, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> that was interesting, but uh, he's real excited and we're very excited for him. And we enjoy spending time at the beach. We've got a place down at the coast. Uh, we enjoy a lot of boating and fishing and uh, water sports, that sort of thing, and travel when we can. But both of our jobs make that kind of difficult. That's why we got the weekend getaway, which is kind of a nice, nice thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That gets us, uh, allows us to get to know you just a little bit sure. and understand about your uh, background. So we obviously want to talk to you about estate planning. We, in our world of as um, financial planners working primarily with retirees, you know, there's a lot of things that people, even at the retirement age, have not taken care of, or they need updates, or uh, right. life has changed. And there's just, you know, it's always moving when it comes to estate planning. So, would you mind, let's just take this from a basic perspective yeah. and just start to build a picture here, okay? Yep. So, yep. would you mind sharing with us, from your perspective, you know, let's just take the average person. We don't have anything complicated. We don't have anything that we got to think about yet. But one of the basic elements that I need to have in place, in your opinion, when it comes to an estate plan? Well, that's a great question, Raiden. And, you know, I actually, when I talk to folks about this, what I, the first thing I really do is sort of define what estate planning is. Because sometimes people, people reach out to me and they say, we have a very simple family. We don't need estate planning. But what I, you know, I describe estate planning as merely the process of making decisions in advance making sure those decisions are set out somehow in writing or, or some other way so that other people can act for you in, in, in certain situations. And so these are decisions about family members, about assets, about kids, about uh, where they go to school. It may be decisions about how one uh, wants sort of end of life matters to be taken care of, funeral arrangements. So all of these things kind of encompass estate planning. And so you know, where I come in is, of course, there are some legal documents that I know we'll, we'll get to in a second that need to be prepared as part of the estate plan. But when people say, you know, what, what makes up a good estate plan, I say it's the legal documents. It's making sure things like all the beneficiaries are correct on their retirement accounts. 
It also involves making sure to the extent they want to having funeral or cremation arrangements taken care of, which could be just simply no more than writing a letter to the family saying, look, this is how I would like my funeral to be or, or something, you know, something along those, some sort of guideline for the family. It can be making sure that the kids are set up, you know, if something happens to the parents for school. I mean, I've got some clients who want to make sure their college 529 plan is, is set up. All of these things kind of involve estate planning. And uh, so when I meet with folks, what I try to do is try to figure out what's important to them. What do they want to accomplish? And then we try to, you know, fit, fit in the pieces of the puzzle in the right place. Yeah. So, and it's, it's definitely a lot to think through. So I got married two years ago and then I had my first child this year. And so, you know, every little thing that changes in your life, it makes you think about, well, how am I going to think all this through and make sure it's all done properly when I'm not here? That's uh, right. So leading with that, you mentioned estate planning documents are, are, yep. are the things that actually get it done. What are the main documents? And then we'd like to go into those, but what are the main few documents that you would say the average should have? Sure, sure. Well, I describe it as the three-legged stool of estate planning. <laughs> the three basic documents that I, th- I really think everybody needs, almost without exception, there, there might be certain situations where somebody doesn't need one of these. But for the most part, most everybody needs a will, a durable power of attorney, and a healthcare power of attorney with a living will component. Those three documents really cover the basics. They are they do different things. There's not there's maybe a little bit of overlap in certain places, but they're they're really dis, three distinct instruments. And all of these three things uh, really set out your wishes and put other people in control to take care of things for you. Because obviously, as long as we're all healthy and living, we can make our own decisions and manage our own affairs. But these three documents are intended to provide a a mechanism for other people to act legally uh, for you. And so those are really the basics. And I can certainly, you know, I think we should go through those in some detail. Yeah. So let's, uh, so let's just take the first one. Okay. A will. Yep. Now, you know, I've heard people say that they have, you know, just something they wrote out, you know, right. a piece of paper and they signed it. What's the difference between somebody doing that and actually having a a, a real document that is considered to be a will? Is there, right. how would you view those as different? Well, you know, North Carolina law recognizes handwritten wills for certain, under certain very limited circumstances. So that's called a holographic will, you know, a handwritten will. Um and also, of course, as you know, some people do things online. You know, there's LegalZoom and other places like that. And I always like to, you know, I like to be practical and realistic. And so I say, you know, those, it's better than nothing. And I can certainly explain what happens when someone dies without any kind of will. And that can be a disaster. So it's better to have something. But the wills that we draft, it's not just the document that we bring to the table. That's obviously a big part of it. We're constantly modifying the, the law. I mean, the, 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 the documents to, to address changes in the law. So that's certainly part of it. But a lot of it is sort of the experience around seeing how these documents are actually used. So a good example in a will. In North Carolina, the general rule is if people own property, you know, a house, and let's say they leave it to their three kids. Well, the general rule is the three kids get the house. And that all sounds great off the bat. But what I've seen more often than not is that when the three children then inherit the house, you know, 
one of them wants to live there, one of them wants to sell it, and one of them wants to keep it and rent it as an investment. And maybe the best thing to do would have been to just sell the house and distribute the money. Well, the three kids could certainly sell the house if they all agree, but let's say they don't. So one of the things we bring to our wills, or at least the discussion that I have with people when we do a will, is whether to include something called a power of sale. It's a very specialized provision that gives the executor the ability to sell the property without court involvement and distribute the money to the kids. That's not in a default online will, or it's certainly generally not going to be in a handwritten will. People, you've got to write it out a certain way. So a good legal, a good will drafted by an attorney who has handled many probates over the years, who has seen these things play out, that's what we can bring. You know, that's what any good estate planning attorney can bring is sort of customized uh, additions and deletions in certain cases. Sometimes we don't want something based on the actual clients. Gotcha. So you mentioned um, having a will, but then you also mentioned this thing called a living will that can be a part of the actual will. So can you go into you know, everything that can, can be put into the will and then why you would need something like a living will added in? Well, the living will is actually part of the healthcare document. So you know, so we have the will that handles the, the assets in, 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 in an estate when someone dies. The other two documents, the durable power of attorney and the healthcare power of attorney, those are the documents that are used while someone is still living. In the case of the healthcare power of attorney, as the name kind of sounds, it's where someone can make healthcare decisions for you. But the living will, to answer your question, Murs, the living will is part of that healthcare document, and that's where you can set out your end-of-life matters, you know, how you want end-of-life decisions to be made or who you want to make those decisions under what conditions. It used to be that the healthcare power attorney and the living will were separated. Mm -hmm. So it used to be we used to have a four-legged stool (laughs) instead of a three-legged stool. But in 2009, the the law was changed in regards to healthcare documents, and now it kind of makes sense to combine the healthcare power attorney with the living will into one document, which is what we do now. But both of those life documents, the durable power of attorney and the healthcare, the reason why those are so critical is those are the documents that would let someone make decisions for a client while they're living. Um, you know, the will is after someone dies, and that's important, of course. But we all are concerned, especially given the, the pandemic that we're in now, that, you know, any one of us might be in a healthcare crisis at any time. Mm-hmm. And we might need someone to step in and make either financial decisions and the durable power of attorney or healthcare decisions. And so those two documents legally give someone the right to do that for you. Hey, nice. So, when we, when we, I, one of the things that I just want to make sure we're clear on as far as with the durable power of attorney. So an IRA for perspective, for a understanding is owned by an individual and you may have an end, you may have a beneficiary listed, but let's just say I'm married and I have a, an IRA. Am I understanding it right? She cannot access that IRA without that power of attorney in a sense of being able to make decisions and have to do things. So if I'm incapacitated, that's what that power of attorney could help that person do. 
Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. A power of attorney actually is a very powerful document because you're giving someone the keys to the kingdom. The person you've named, and of course, spouses often name each other, but then there are often backups, you know, alternates, but whoever is there can access your IRA, your bank accounts. They can sell your assets. They can make gifts. They can sign your name to a contract and bind you to it. They could, uh, you know, do all manner of things. They could change the beneficiaries of that IRA that you mentioned. All those powers are important. And, and we've had, I mean, I've been doing this long enough where I've seen it all at this point. And we've had all of those powers utilized. You know, speaking of IRAs, you know, in powers of attorney, let me give you a quick story, quick example. I had a situation many years ago where um, it was a younger couple, and, and this wasn't in the context of an IRA, but rather life insurance, but similar. And this, the husband in this case was in a very terrible car accident and ended up dying from his injuries. And he was in the process at the time of the accident of, of going through underwriting for the life insurance, but he hadn't yet completed the beneficiary form. And he, of course, intended to name his wife as beneficiary, but he just hadn't gotten to that step yet. So when he was in the hospital, if he had died, let's say the policy was issued, but with no beneficiary named, well, the proceeds would have been paid, but it would have been paid to his estate. And he had significant creditors and the creditors would have eaten up all of those life insurance proceeds. Fortunately, the wife came to me and with the gentleman's power of attorney, you know, with the power to change beneficiaries, she was able to name herself the beneficiary and submit it to the life insurance company. And that was in place when he died. So when he passed, the proceeds went to her directly and not the estate. So these powers, sometimes people focus on that. My client, I've had clients say, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want someone to change the beneficiaries. And I get that. We're all concerned about bad actors, but it's that really gets to making sure we pick the right people, not so much eliminating those powers. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's a that's a powerful story there. I mean, that saved her a tremendous amount of headache going through. And we'll get into what the probate process is and, a, and, uh, and an asset being paid into the estate. Yep. But yep. before we do that, um, I want to go into, so you mentioned the the main documents, the will, the power of attorneys. And, um, but now, you know, every now and then someone says, well, so-and-so told me that I need a trust. Right. Um, or you read about it online that if you, you know, have these types of situations, you, you should probably think about doing a trust. Yep. So can you walk us through, you know, why would someone, what type of scenario does someone have to have that may want them to think about getting a trust drawn up? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me first kind of briefly explain what a trust is in yeah, a very simple great. way. I mean, a trust is really a way for someone to hold assets for somebody else. You know, if I give my brother $20 and ask him to hold it and give it to my son at NC State next week, that's a trust. My brother is holding the money. He's like a trustee. He gives it to my son next week. That's really all the trust is. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated in, in real life, but that's a, a sort of an, you know, an example. So trusts, sometimes people set them up for estate tax reasons, you know, to save on estate taxes. The good news there is that reason has gone away for most folks because the estate tax exemption is so high. It's over $11 million per person. So just set the estate tax aside for a minute. 
trusts are still incredibly helpful in some cases. Sometimes they're unnecessary, but in some cases they're incredibly helpful. And I always describe it, the most common scenario is, is when people say, you know, I want this person or these people to receive my estate, but, <laughs> you know, fill in the blank, but it's a second marriage for me, and I, I want my second wife to um, take some benefit, but ultimately at her death, I want to make sure it goes back to my children. Or people might say, I want my children to inherit, but they're all minors. They're not ready for it yet. Or maybe a beneficiary has special needs or has a, a substance abuse problem. We want to hold it, but we don't want to just give it to them because they'll spend it. That's what a trust can do. Is a trust is a way to make sure it, it kind of slips in behind the will. And the will says, I leave everything to the trust. And the trustee is uh, the person who would step in later on and hold the money for the kids or for the second wife or whomever. It's like my brother with the, in, with the, the example I gave in the beginning. The, so a trust is a mechanism. It's a legal, it's a very lengthy document, very, very long and a sort of complicated document. But the concept is we want a way to hold assets for these these family members until certain conditions, maybe until they're 30 or until this uh, son who's got a substance abuse problem has been clean for five years, you know, and documented, or I want to hold these assets for my second spouse until her death and then pay it back to my children. You know, these are all sort of variations of the same theme, which is I want this person or these people to benefit, but I don't want to just give it to them. You know, you actually helped me uh, with that exact situation. I am in a second marriage. I have children from a first marriage. Mm. And we wanted to set up a way that the kids could would be able to receive funds mm -hmm. that I would leave if something happened to me, but that that would control because at the time they were younger and uh, they're now getting older, but still uh, I, I didn't want them to get all that money at first. Right. And so right. we were able to stair step them through that whole process. And then I was able to you know, have it be so that my second wife wasn't having to deal with all that. We made other family members, the trustees, and now yep. it kind of separates her from any kind of strife around that. That's right. That's right. right. And, you know, a lot of times people, you know, it's sort of like when I imagine when people talk about premarital agreements, you know, like a prenup, sometimes people might think, well, this sounds like I'm not trusting this other person, you know, like the second, second spouse. It's not so much that I don't think, I mean, that, Sometimes that might be the case, but the problem is sometimes people say, well, I'm just going to leave everything to this person and, and they'll take care of the kids. You know, they'll, they'll do what's right. And, and they probably would, but what if they remarry and then die? Well, some other person might inherit the estate rather than the kids. So, or what if they're sued, you know, and the, or they go through bankruptcy? I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios where, you know, if people want to just make sure the assets are taken care of, that's when a trust can fit in. And sometimes people come in and are convinced they need a trust and I talk it out with them and they decide they don't need it. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's overkill, but in many cases, it's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So sticking with the, the idea of a trust. So a lot of our clients and a lot of retirees in general, the majority of their assets are in these 401k IRA type vehicles right. mm -hmm. where they haven't paid any taxes on those dollars just yet. So and let's say you're, you're sitting down with someone that the, that's the majority of their assets and it's deemed that they do need a trust. What do they need to think about when making the trust or the, the, the IRA have a beneficiary of their trust rather than right. having 
what the majority do is just list their different beneficiaries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has certainly been a hot topic too, especially in this past year with this SECURE Act that passed. So the the whole idea of making a trust a beneficiary of a retirement plan or life insurance, you know, it's been, it's been, you know, this has been something we've been dealing with for, for, for a decade or two. People have been doing this and for the past, it's been just fine. As long as the trust is drafted a very particular way, the IRS has got very particular rules about retirement plans payable to a trust. So you don't want just some off-the-shelf thing may or may not satisfy the IRS rules. But let's say you have a trust set up right and the retirement plan goes to the trust. Well, it used to be that that was great because we could pay the required minimum distributions through but prevent the children from, you know, cashing it in. Well, the SECURE Act, of course, imposed this 10-year payout for retirement accounts for non-spouse beneficiaries. And so trusts now have to incorporate that same language. And so some of the benefits of the trust for retirement plans has gone away in, in many cases. There are still situations where it makes sense maybe when there's minor children involved or people who are disabled, um, you can set up trust for those folks. Uh, There are ways to make a trust accumulate the IRA. It's called an accumulation trust. But these sort of get very complicated and specialized type provisions that we, this is part of what we talk to, uh, talk to clients about is when deciding uh, whether to do this or not. To be honest with you, a lot of my clients, when we have trust set up for older, mature kids, you know, where there's no real problems, a lot of my clients now are shifting back and they're making the children the beneficiaries directly of the retirement accounts instead of the trust. Mm-hmm. We still keep the trust for everything else, like the investments, you know, the non-retirement investments, that is the bank accounts, the house, whatever. But a lot of the clients are, are moving the IRAs back to the children. So but that is a complicated issue. Yeah, yeah very complicated. So another question I just thought about as we're thinking this through, because I think about clients and their questions. So one of the questions or one of the things that people sometimes talk to us about is they got, they've got their, we're trying to set up how things are going to go to their their children. Yep. And inevitably one of the children is married to somebody that the parents think that marriage is not going to last. And so what we don't want to do, this is their thinking. We don't want to leave money to my daughter and then because they've got grandkids and they right. and then all of a sudden it gets commingled with this with this spouse that they that they don't necessarily think is going to make it so to speak that marriage yep. mm-hmm. and so they want to protect that whole process is yeah. that something you can do with the oh, yeah. trust Yes, that's a great example, Raiden, of where a trust can be very helpful. You know, in that case, what we would do is set it up so that child's share, the one who's married to the other person that everybody's a little sketchy on, we would make sure that that child's share is in the trust. Maybe we give the child the right to withdraw at certain ages or certain amounts, you know, just so it's not completely locked down. But that way, if that child, let's say, were to predecease or die early, whatever's still there would go to the grandkids and not to the other, to, you know, not to the spouse. And we've had situations where that's happened for sure many times over the years. And, you know, concerns about divorce and creditors for the children, 
that's a big, that is a very common uh, subject. And it's, a, it's, you know, especially in this day and age, I mean, marriages, you know, one half of them end in divorce or, or something. So it's a concern and people want to make sure that their assets don't end up in the hands of some other party. Because again, let's say that spouse that you're t- describing, let's say the marriage does break up and let's say they didn't set it up in the 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 child dies and it goes to the spouse and they remarry and then they die. It could be with some guy who lives in Las Vegas, you know, I mean, who knows where the, the estate could be. Um, so a trust is a good way to kind of keep it in the family. Good. All right. One more follow-up on that. So this is another one that, that happens and I will say it's not extremely common in the sense I don't hear it every single day, but yep. I hear it every single year. Every <laughs> single year I have a scenario where I have somebody come in and they've got multiple children. And there could be a multiple of reasons for this, mm-hmm. but let's just mm-hmm. say there's one of the children, the parents have decided that they, in all essence, are going to disinherit. They're not going to leave anything to that person. Right. And like, again, there, we can dream up a lot of different reasons. I've heard a lot of different reasons, mm-hmm. but what's the safest way to do that so that, I guess, a couple of things. One, it gets done and it's the least awkward for the children who inherit the money, number one. Number two, that that one that they decided that they are going to not leave anything to, that they can't come back and contest it and then say, you know, leave it up into some legal battle that, you know, that lasts for years. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing, and you're right, this is very common. I mean, I I probably have this, I probably have it once or twice a quarter. I mean, it happens more often than you realize. And sometimes, you know, I've got one client now who says, you know, this one child of mine is extremely well off and everybody knows it and they understand that they're not going to inherit because they don't need it. My other kids do. So it could be perfectly, you know, rational type of reasons. But ultimately, what the, the first point I always tell my clients is, you know, despite what adult children might think, <laughs> they have no right to inherit. I've had many adult children in my office who thought that they did, but legally, they don't. People are free. My clients, you know, your clients, people are free to leave their estates however they like. They can leave everything to charity if they want to. So, you know, the it, it is very easy to create a plan where one child is not included. They're really, all you really need to do is just list the ones who are included. You don't even really need to get into it. Sometimes we do get into it because we want there to be some kind of written statement. Sometimes the clients feel bad about it or they want some kind of explanation in the document as to why they're doing it uh, the way they are, but they don't have to do that. So, you know, it certainly is very easy to do. I recommend my clients who are considering this, they that if they're going to do it, I ask them, can you kind of tell the family why, you know, including this person that you're excluding. If people know in advance that that might, you know, make them less upset later on, but that's not always practical. So then that gets to the question about contesting that you were asking about. And the good news there, I guess, is that it's very difficult to contest an estate plan, at least in North Carolina. It can be done, but it's generally for reasons where you can prove, that's the hard part, that the person who executed the will, the parents, let's say, in our example, 
they were under some kind of undue influence, or perhaps they didn't have the capacity at the time of executing the documents. And so you have to prove that. You have to prove some kind of fraud or some kind of undue influence or some, some reason, some sort of smoking gun as to why this will is invalid. That's really what you're trying to get at, is that the will itself is completely invalid. And that, as I said, that's hard to do. Now, what I also tell folks who want to do this is I say, you know, a will is a very public document. It's part of the probate process. It's filed at the courthouse. Everybody can see it. A trust is not a public document. It's a private contract, essentially. Only the beneficiaries are entitled to a copy of the trust. Uh, and even then, not even always the, that's the case. So if we want to exclude a child, that might be a reason to go towards the trust side of things. And we could have the trust do all of that. And that one child who's excluded wouldn't necessarily know what's going on behind the scenes. Again, that's sort of a conversation to have. And some people want that privacy. Some people don't really care. They say, you know what, we're gone. It's not our problem anymore. But those are some of the factors that kind of come into play there. I hope that you are enjoying the show. By the way, if you are in or nearing retirement and are someone who wants to gain clarity on what questions you should be asking, learn what the biggest retirement myths are, and identify what you could be doing to achieve peace of mind for your retirement, get started today by requesting your complimentary video course, Four Steps to Secure Your Retirement. To access the course, simply visit pomwealth.net forward slash podcast. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in applying these principles to your life. So head over to pomwealth.net forward slash podcast and check us out. All right. One more question that I got on a follow-up and then Merce has a question for you. Yeah. But, uh, th- these are just things, again, that come into my mind that, that I think we deal with. And I just want to know kind of how we might do it uh, or at least have some concept of how to do it. So we have um, a scenario where, let's say, again, parents have three children. Two of the children are doing fine financially. They're not trying to disinherit anybody, but what they have decided is that this one particular child who they feel they would like to help for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. and they, let's just say, going to buy a home. So what they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, what we want to do is we want to go ahead and give that particular child, let's just say $100,000, but we don't want to make that unequal for the other two. So we want to set this up so that we're going to give the $100,000 to the child to help them buy their house. And then they want to try to figure out how to equalize that. Is that something again that we can do with documents? Yes. Yeah. That's a great, another great question. And I've had this happen many times and you know, at first blush, some clients say, you know what, I'm just going to strike the check and give them the $100,000 and be done with it. The problem with that is that's po- that's technically a taxable gift. And, you know, the annual gift tax exclusion is $15,000 or so a year. Anything above that, you're supposed to file a gift tax return with the IRS. So I don't generally encourage just outright gifts like that, but, but people do do it. Uh, and that's, I understand that. But if, if, if people come to me before they do it, one of the, there's different ways of structuring it, but one of the ways we do it is we say, well, why don't we do this like a loan where we do a simple promissory note. You loan the money to the child. That way it's not a gift. There's some interest there. You can forgive the interest if you want along the way. You could forgive the payments along the way if you want, but if it's essentially a debt that's owed to you, and then we can put something in the documents, the estate planning documents that says, well, 
if this child, if this debt still exists at the time of my death, then first of all, you know, we're going to give the note, the promissory note to the child as part of their inheritance. And that essentially waives the debt. I mean, who's, they're not going to pay themselves. So, and then, or you could make an adjustment to the shares of the other children based on the balance of the note. So it kind of all evens out in the end. You know, there's a couple different ways of structuring that, but that's, when people do do that, I always try to get in front of that and say, well, let's talk about some options of setting it up first before you just write them the check. There may be, I've had some clients actually purchase the house with the child, you know, the parent and they co they own, they own it together. There's pros and cons to that, but that's another way of doing it. You know, maybe the parents provide the down payment, but the, and the children are going to make the mortgage payments or something. So there's some, there's some options there. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, Long story short, it's, you, you should think about it before you just cut a check to your, your kids or right. Yeah. So we've talked about quite a few different things so far. We've talked about the, uh, the powers of attorney and the living will that kind of, they help out while you're living. And then we've talked about the trusts and the will that are yep. for after death, basically, that help direct the assets. Exactly. Um, and so it all comes, kind of comes around to this thing. And you mentioned it earlier, probate. Mm-hmm. So Raiden and I, we're, we, we know what probate is to an extent. You know it extensively, and I imagine you're in probate court here and there. But for somebody who's not in this world, can you break down what probate is, what it means, and what that whole process is if you get to that point? Sure, sure. Yeah, we handle, our office probably handles 40 probates every year. So we do a lot of it. And uh, probate, you know, I always, when I meet with an executor, and some of the, our executors are former clients of ours, you know, a child of a client who has died. Sometimes people come to us kind of out of the blue with an estate. But when I meet with an executor, the way I describe probate is like this. I say, you know, probate is a, it's a legal process to transfer assets from the person who has died to the person who is listed in the will, the heirs, the, the children or the wife or the spouse or whomever. It's the process of blessing that transfer. You know, you can't just, this doesn't happen automatically. Uh, someone dies with a car, DMV needs to change the title. Well, they'll only change the title from instructions from the executor. So it begins with filing the will and some initial paperwork to have the executor appointed. And then it's a, it's a process of several months of gathering the probate assets paying off debts, if there are any debts, and then distributing the assets according to the will. Now, if one thing I always like to say is I like to say, look, if I describe probate as the process of transferring assets, if that's, if that's what it is, you know, assuming my definition's halfway right, well, then the one thing to point out is there are some assets that transfer outside of the will. They don't have anything to do with the will. We call those non-probate, you know, very clever name. <laughs> and some examples are assets with the beneficiary. We've already talked about some. You know, Raiden mentioned an IRA, you know, life insurance, annuities, any kind of asset where you get a form and you fill it out and say, if I die, it's to be paid to this person as beneficiary. Well, if I was to die, that person gets it outside of the will and outside probate. Doesn't have anything to do with it. Also, jointly owned assets most commonly between spouses, but not always, of course. But if one owner dies, there's nothing to transfer to the second owner because the second owner is still living. 
They both own it. My wife and I own our house. If I died, she doesn't have to do a thing. She owns the house. So those are non-probate when the first owner dies, those joint assets. So probate, you know, is a process of figuring out what assets go through probate, what assets don't go through probate, and making sure they go the right way. The probate side of things typically comes down to things like uh, individually owned assets without a beneficiary, like cars or bank accounts or individually owned real estate, you know, that's not joint. Those are the assets that typically get listed in the probate and get ultimately distributed to the heirs. So one of the things that we have a client say, just thinking through all these things that we've talked about, you know, all these different little things. And um, so one of the things that people that we actually help a little bit with, but I, I'm sure you might have some advice on this is, um, you know, what would you say is the best way you've got all these different potentials, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's beneficiary designations, you've got property, you might have uh, a different accounts. What's a way, you know, you set this all up legally. What's right. a way that you recommend that they bring it in and, and make sure that the kids kind of know what's what so that they don't just get in and all of a sudden have no idea what's going on? Right. Well, another great question. Um, and remember in the beginning, I talked about how estate planning involves not only legal documents, but other things like checking beneficiaries and, and making sure funeral, funeral arrangements are, are taken care of. Well, one of these non-legal things is the answer to your question. What I often recommend to my clients is they draft, I call it a letter to the family or a statement of intent. It doesn't really matter what it's called, but it's something that's in the client's own words. It's, I don't have samples to give people. I usually don't even ever see this document, but I say, you know, once we've got the estate planning set up, you've got your beneficiaries set up, you've got your cremation or fuel arrangements taken care of, or at least written down, we need something to kind of bring it all together so the kids know what's up. And that's what this document can be. Uh, it's a non-binding letter or statement or, or you know, spreadsheet even, something that kind of says, look, kids, this is what you know, your mom and I have done. This is this was our thinking. Here's the documents. Here's the lawyer's name. Here's the accountant's name. Here's the financial investment advisor's names and contact information. This is our list of accounts. These are our, our properties. This is where we've got funeral arrangements, you know, kind of like the quarterback in the middle of all of these other things that kind of pull it all together. That document can be extremely helpful to the family. I've met with many executors over the years where someone has done that and it's been incredibly helpful to them and us because people when we meet with a client about handling a probate they often say well you know tell me what do I do first and I say well I'm not even really sure I don't you know I know less than you do Um, I don't know where the accounts are so being an executor sometimes is like being a detective figuring out where things are and this document can really help make that a lot easier And I usually recommend people consider doing that and keeping that in the notebook that we do for folks and put it all in one place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with executors that have been on the good side of that, where they know exactly where everything is and then where it takes, you know, it it can take years before they finally settle the entire estate. Um, Yeah. We've had Kate, We've had cases, occasionally I'll serve as executor and trustee. Um, obviously, most of the time it's a family member or friend, but we've had cases where my paralegal and I have actually had to go through someone's house drawer by drawer and, you know, 
a plastic tub by plastic tub to try to figure out where things are and what's what accounts there are because it's it's hard to do sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So with that, I mean, we've talked about quite a few different things. Obviously, estate planning is it, there's a lot to it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many different things you got to think about. There's so many different documents that could potentially be in play for your situation. So, Chess, why would you say or why would someone go to an attorney like yourself mm-hmm. that has a lot of experience versus versus going to these things that are heavily marketed online, like something right. like legal zoom. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a very fair question. And a lot of people, a lot of my clients have asked me that and I get it. You know, again, it's like I was saying earlier, we try to be very practical and realistic and I understand there's a cost difference and, and I understand why people would consider those things. And as I said before, I do recommend people do that over nothing. I'd much rather have a client go to LegalZoom and not me than do nothing and not me, you know? So at a bare minimum, something, people should have something in place. The issue with those documents or some kind of fill in the blank type deal, it's kind of like, you know, it's like I was saying earlier, it's not what we pro- what we bring to the table or what other attorneys do is not just documents. That's certainly a part of it, but it's also the experience of knowing the questions to ask, the extra provisions to include or remove in certain cases, the kinds of things that we've seen in our experience that makes people think, well, gosh, maybe I should do it this other way. Well, oh, I see your point now why I shouldn't just write the check to the child for the house and maybe I should do a promissory note. It's it's sort of the it's the it's the experience that comes with the documents that I think a, a, you know a good estate planning attorney can provide. Also it's knowing when documents need to be updated. I mean, the SECURE Act I mentioned, you know, we wrote a letter to every single one of our clients, thousands of clients saying, you know, this law passed late last year. It may have tremendous impact on your estate plan in terms of retirement plans payable to a trust. We don't know if that fits you or not, but call us and let's sit down. We don't charge people just to sit down and talk. So let's sit down and talk and figure out if it's relevant and what needs to be done, if anything. You know, LegalZoom's not going to reach out to a client after the fact and say, by the way, you might need to think about this or that. It's also knowing, talking about probate, MERS, you know, I mean, we know how North Carolina wills are actually probated. I mean, I know the clerks in different counties. I know what they look for. Clerks of court have a lot of power and, and discretion on, on how to administer a probate estate. So we know the way things need to be written to make the clerks happy. And sometimes it's very particular. Some counties do things one way, other counties do things a different way. And so we know what they're going to key in on and we want to make life as smooth as possible for the family later on so we know what to include or exclude or draft a particular way. When someone dies with, with real estate, it, the, 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 pro, the file needs to be recorded in whatever county they have property in. You know, LegalZoom may not necessarily know that. So while I think there's certainly a place for those kinds of uh, estate plans, and, and you know, a lot of times people have sort of prepaid estate plans or something through an employer that's sort of the equivalent of that. You kind of get an off-the-shelf set of documents. I do think that has its purpose, and I, as I said, it's better than not having anything. But if people want to know more particular reasons as to why things should be done a certain way or if they want some suggestions on different way of doing things, that's what an attorney can, can provide. Yeah, I've been doing this for you know 
financial planning for about 20 years. And I, about 15 years ago, we got connected up with a service that we would be able to just send somebody to, you know, Hey, you go here, they could do a will or they could do a power of attorney. It wasn't legal zoom, but something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was all done where they could just get it done. uh, You know, much less expensive is the way they looked at it. And I learned extremely quickly that um, there was many times that that was just not the right answer. And the reason why is because of what we've done here for in, in this conversation is just really thinking through a lot of things that you actually need to have somebody that says, oh, well, if you're going to do that, that's different than your basic, I'm just going to write out what I want things to go, who I want it to go to. Right. And I think if we have any kind of, you know, scenario where we've got, in my opinion, multiple children, or we've got multiple accounts or whatever that might be, you know, having something in place and having somebody to help me think it through, I know right. has been invaluable to me. And I know that with our clients, that it's been invaluable because they'll come out of, like I opened up with the meetings and they're going to say, you know what? I was in that conversation with just, I never thought about this, whatever this is. I never thought mm-hmm. about that. And that little thought, they said that changed everything about how I'm going to deal with my estate plan. And so I just want to say that in my opinion of me working in this, in, in my side of the world for all this time, having somebody help you think it through is, is pretty key. Yeah. So I just want to say, I know we, we've uh, taken up a lot of time today of your time and we, but we certainly appreciate you coming on and some of these questions. Um, and, and it's been a, a tremendous amount of, of good information, but could you just let our listeners know where they can find you, how they can, you know, get in contact with you if they had questions they'd like to talk to you about? Sure. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So our website is, um, kirschlaw.com and our main office number, it's probably the best place to call is 919-848-0420. We are located in Raleigh, kind of near North Hills, near Duke Raleigh Hospital in sort of that general area. Um, So we're really easy to find just off the Beltline. And if anybody wanted to call or visit the website, we'd be uh, more than happy to hear from them. And I would enjoy talking to folks. Good. If you if you just heard him say Kirsch Law and you're thinking how do I spell that? Don't worry, it's in the uh, it's in the show notes. And you'll, <laughs> it's we'll a little have, tricky. <laughs> yeah, we'll have the website link in there. We're going to also have the phone number in there, so that if you had any questions, that you could contact Chess and uh, his team. and And I encourage you to at least go and have a conversation because it might be that um, you you get that one little point that helps you go. Wow, I didn't get that, or I didn't I didn't understand that. So. Thank you so much, Chess. We yeah. it very thank, you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you, Raiden. Thank you, Murs. It was a real pleasure to be here. All right. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That wraps up today's episode of the Secure Your Retirement Podcast. If you found value in today's episode, we would love nothing more than for you to head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a review. Be sure to take a screenshot of the review before you submit it, and we'll send you a special gift. Our book, Get Off the Retirement Roller Coaster. Just email morgan at pomwealth.net with a screenshot of the review to get your gift. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified of new episodes as they're released every week. And finally, please share our podcast with your favorite social network so more of your friends and family can benefit from this information. Always remember, you've worked hard to get where you are, and now you deserve to have a retirement that works hard for you.